Open your Bibles with me to Acts 17. Uh, verse, uh, our text this morning is Acts 17, verses 16 through 21. Uh, but before we hear the reading and preaching of God's Word, let's pray and ask for His blessing on it this morning. Let's pray. Our, our prayer for illumination was written by Galatius, uh, a Christian writing uh, around 492 A.D. O Lord, who has taught us that we are most truly free when we lose our will in Yours, help us to gain that freedom by continual surrender unto You, that we may walk in the way which You have prepared for us, and in doing Your will may find our life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Acts 17, verses 16 through 21. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what, it, what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, uh, fifth grade and below, come up and join me. Hey, hey. Yeah, come on up. All right, so if I promised to give you a hundred dollars of my own money, what would you buy? Star Wars Legos. That's a good, good choice. Yeah? A whole page out of that catalog. Yeah, Isaac. Something that looks like a watch? Okay, would it actually be a watch? No. <laughs> all right. Yeah, all right, one more. A church. Okay, all right. $100 goes a long ways. Uh, all right, so uh, it just so happens that I have $100 of my own money right here. Uh, now, now, hang on. It's $100 of my own money. I made it myself. See? I, no, no, no. What? Come on. Uh, it says it says $100, and, and that's me right there on the front. You see the bow tie? Yeah. So here it is, as promised. Who wants it? Who's ready to go shopping? What? No, it, you don't have to be a president. Benjamin Franklin was not a president, and he's on the real $100 bill. Okay, you, all right, so this money's fake. This money's fake, but what is the big deal? I mean, 
$100 is $100, right? If I give it to you like I promised, you can still buy what you want, right? What? You, you kids. Okay, so what you're saying, hang on, hang on. So what you're saying is if something is fake, it can't really do what the real thing can do. Is that what you're saying? Okay, all right. So another word for that is counterfeit. Counterfeit. It's a fake thing pretending to be the real thing. And in the passage that we just read, the Apostle Paul is walking through the city of Athens. That's Greece, not Tennessee. And he saw that the whole city was full of idols. Now, idols are statues. Back then, they were little statues that represent different gods other than the one living and true God. Each of those little gods, those idols, they promised to do something for the person who trusted in it. And and as Paul walks around and sees those idols, it says his spirit was provoked inside of him. It means he was getting angry because he knew that all of those little gods were counterfeit. Counterfeit. None of them were real. None of them were the real thing. And so none of them could actually do for people what they promised to do. And the people were trusting in those idols to give them protection in a really hard world. They, they were trusting those little gods to provide a better life for them. But none of those counterfeit gods could actually do what was promised. And still, the people kept trusting in them. It, it would be like you grabbing that $100 from me because you actually believed it could still get you what you wanted. But Paul knew that the people could keep trusting those idols all the way until they were totally disappointed in the end. Because idols might promise life, but they can only give death because they keep people away from the real thing. And that's why Paul began to tell the people of Athens about Jesus. Because in a world full of counterfeits, Jesus is the real thing. He's the only one who can actually deliver on what he promises. He he promises life to those who trust in him alone, and, and he proved that he can give you life because he himself rose again from the dead. That's why Paul was talking about the resurrection. So you and I might think, now, oh, that was so long ago. Those idols, that's from a long time ago. But did you know they're still around today? Yeah, only they don't look like little statues anymore. An idol can actually be anything that people look to, hoping that it will make their life the way that it's supposed to be. An idol is anything, even good things, that people put in the place of the one true God. People make idols out of comfort, having a comfortable life, that can be an idol, or maybe power, or control, or, or even fun. it's it's whatever you think, like, if I can just get that thing, then my life is going to be good. Or as long as my health and or my family, as long as they're okay, you know, then everything's going to be fine. But here's the thing. What if my health goes away? What if my family's not okay? All of a sudden, the idol that I was trusting in to make my life all right it's proven to be a fake. 
It couldn't actually do it. The, the idol could not give what it promised. But, but if you and I trust in Jesus, he's, because he's the real thing, he will never disappoint. He always gives what he promises. Yeah, we might have to wait for it. He doesn't always work the way that we want him to. But because Jesus is the real thing in a whole world full of fakes, that's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right. Thanks, guys. You can go back to your seat. If you haven't done so already, open your Bibles to Acts 17. As Sam said, our text this morning is Acts 17, verses 16 through 21. You'll remember that last Sunday we, we saw Paul chased out of Thessalonica and then again chased out of Berea, chased by Jews who were jealous for the traditions of their fathers. And there, who therefore saw Paul's teaching of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, a, a gospel of salvation by grace alone, through, through faith alone, apart from works of the law. They saw that gospel as a threat to the traditions that they loved. And so they chased Paul away from Thessalonica and then Berea, and we're told that he was taken by uh, the brothers as far as Athens, and that's where we find him this morning. Of course, we find him alone because you'll remember he had left Silas and Timothy behind in Berea to, to finish the work of establishing the church there uh, before they moved on. And so Paul is here alone in uh, Athens. And, and in his commentary on this passage, John Stott dry, draws attention to what Paul sees, uh, to what Paul feels, and to what Paul does as he is there waiting for Silas and Timothy to rejoin him. And I want to follow that same basic outline this morning because I believe that, that noticing these details about Paul's time in Athens teaches us something important about the gospel uh, that Paul preached, something about the gospel that we ourselves have believed. These details of Paul's time in Athens show us, first, that the gospel uh, is for everyone and that everyone needs it. The gospel is for everyone, and everyone needs it. Let's, let's begin then with what Paul sees. What did Paul see there in Athens? Well, Luke tells us in verse 16. He says that while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy to rejoin him, his spirit was provoked within him because he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, if you're not familiar with this story, that may, that may actually come as a little bit of a surprise to you. We, we tend today to associate Athens with, with philosophy. We, we, we think of Socrates and of, and of Plato and of, and of Aristotle. It's a, it's a city of, of learning and of, and of reason. And therefore, we, we don't associate it with idolatry. We, we may even think that the superstitious idolatry that is, that is represented by, by the myriad idols throughout Athens is actually opposed to reasoned philosophy. And in a sense, that's correct. Well, we'll see this when we look briefly at, at Paul's engagement with the Epicurean and, and Stoic philosophers. But, but remember that Socrates himself was killed in Athens in part for corrupting the youth. And what they meant by that is that he was leading them away from the proper veneration of the gods. So even in Socrates' day, there was a concern for idolatry. There was a concern for the worship of false gods. And it seems that not much had changed by Paul's day. And in fact, if anything, the city had become more idolatrous. And so what Paul sees as he is there in Athens waiting for Silas and Timothy, what he sees is a city full 
of idols. In fact, the word that Luke uses suggests a city overrun or, or a city swamped with idols. This is not a, a neutral term. It is, it is a fullness that is cancerous. It is, it is like being full of disease. Athens was, was full of idols in the way that a dying man is full of disease. So when you think about that, when you, when you think of a city full of idols, overrun with idols in that sense, it, it seems that this might be an obvious point of discontinuity with, with our own day. Paul's context was idolatrous. Our context is, is different. Our context is more secular. People today don't worship false gods. They don't worship any gods at all. They're not even sure that the gods are real. And like I said, to a, to a point that is... Correct. Not even the most unchurched city in in the United States today is is full of idols literally in the same way that Athens was literally full of idols. There is some false religion, of course. In in Chattanooga, the the nearest city here to to Cleveland, there's a a Muslim mosque and there are a Hindu and Baha'i and Mormon temples. There, There is false religion in our cities. But even these are are rare, even in our most secular cities. And so we can can think that this is is an obvious difference between Paul's day and ours. Paul's day was was superstitious and idolatrous. Our day is more secular. But I think we can see the, the continuity between Paul's day and our day when we consider why Athens was full of idols. Why did would people worship and serve these false gods? Well, Sam was, was saying to the kids, people in Paul's day worshipped and served the, the gods, these false gods, because they were seeking protection and provision in an age of evil. What Paul himself calls a, an evil age, in, in an age where nothing was as it was supposed to be. You see, the, the people in, in Paul's day associated the gods with those, those natural uh, powers that they just simply couldn't understand. And they knew that those natural powers could do them great harm. And so they, they needed protection against the whims of the gods. They also wanted the gods to use their powers to, to bless them, if at all possible. And so appeasing the gods so that they wouldn't harm them and pleasing the gods so that they would bless them became the, the focus of the people. They, they wanted to appease and please the gods so that they might be protected from harm and provided with good. And when you think about it that way, you, you recognize that, that people today have, have the same interest in, in protection and provision. People today want to be protected from, from the vagaries of life in this age that is still evil. We, we know it. We, we know it from experience. We know it firsthand. We know it not only when we watch the news, but we, we know it from the occurrences of our own lives. This world is broken. Nothing is as it should be. It is subjected to futility and, and frustration and, and fear. And we want to be protected and we want to be provided for. We want to leverage whatever powers may be to serve our good. People today don't seek these ends through false worship as they did in in Paul's day. But the general disposition of the human heart hasn't changed. Only the symptoms have. People today seek 
protection and, and provision, not through the worship of false gods, but through technology and through politics and through business and even through self-discipline. But they are still seeking the same things. In Paul's day, people looked to the gods. Today, people look to themselves. But both know that they need protection and provision. Both recognize that this world is, is nasty, brutish, and, and dangerous. Both recognize that, that they need help and they refuse to honor the one true and living God who has the power to help them. They seek salvation elsewhere. Paul day, Athens was full of idols. Today, our cities are full of the same disease. It just looks a bit different. And seeing this, seeing this continuity, seeing the, the, the parallel between what was going on in Athens and in Paul's day and what, what is going on today, it, it prepares us, it prepares us to, to learn something about Paul's ministry. Because when we see how Paul responded to what he saw, it teaches us how we ought to respond. So let's first look at how, what Paul felt. What did Paul feel when he saw that the city was full of idols? Well, again, Luke tells us, he, he tells us that Paul was provoked. This is the same word that Paul himself uses in, in 1 Corinthians 13 when, when he tells us that love is not easily angered. Love is not easily provoked. And so what Luke is telling us is that Paul was provoked to anger. But to really understand this, we have to understand the nature of the anger that Paul felt. And, and so it's helpful for us to recognize that this language of, of provocation, this language of, of being provoked, is actually the same word that is used again and again and again in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe God's response to idolatry. Again and again in the Old Testament, we're told that God was provoked by the idolatry of his people. For example, in, in Deuteronomy 9, uh, Moses tells the people, he says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. People have again and again and again turned to false gods, to, to complaining against the one true God. They provoked the Lord to anger. We see something similar in Psalm 106. Where we read that then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. And in this, they provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds and a plague broke out among them. And it wasn't just at the beginning of their life as a nation, but some 700 years later, the prophet Isaiah will write, uh, or the Lord will say through the prophet Isaiah, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walked in a way that is not good following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually by sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. And so at the very beginning, Israel provoked the Lord with their idolatry. And, and again and again and again throughout their history, they provoked the Lord to anger by their idolatry. 
So this language of being provoked, it, it describes God's response. And we may assume then that, that Paul's response to the idolatry in Athens it mirrors God's response and is therefore good. But, but to, to really understand that, then we have to understand exactly what this anger is and why it is good. And so let's, let's think about what it means for, for the Lord and for Paul to be provoked to anger by the idolatry that they see. Well, what, what you have to understand first is that, that God's anger, God's anger is not malice. It is not ill will. We, we see this in the, the mere fact of Israel's history. I just told you that, that from the very beginning of their history, Israel again and again provoked the Lord to anger by their idolatry. But they still had a history. They, they still had a history. God was, was provoked at the very beginning, at, there at Mount Sinai, when the, when the people demanded that Aaron make a golden calf. And yet that was not the end of the nation. God was, was gracious. And he was again provoked in the, uh, their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness when they, when they turned to the Baals. Even though he was the one leading them, even though he was the one providing for them, they, they turned to false gods in the wilderness. And God was provoked. But again, it was not the end of their story. As I said, some 700 years later, the prophet Isaiah tells us that they have been continually provoking God, and yet God continually held out his hands to his people. And so God's anger is not malice. His anger is, is not devoid of love or, or contrary to love, but, but quite the opposite. His anger is an expression of his love for his people. God hates everything that, that hides or, or, or hinders the, the manifestation of his glory to his creation. Why? Because he created all things to enjoy his glory, to, to enjoy glorifying him, to enjoy reflecting that glory. God's glory is the goodness of creation, and the goodness of creation cannot be separated from his glory. They are, they are inseparably bound together. We, we understand this. God's law is a, is a blueprint for the flourishing of His creation. His Word is a description of, of how things work. This world is broken. This world is, is in despair. This world is in frustration because it has rebelled against His Word, because it is no longer in accord with His Word. In the beginning, when all things were as God said they should be, things were very good. And so God hates that which is against His Word and, and against His glory, not because he, he despises His creation, but because He created His creation to delight in and enjoy His glory forever. This is why the Scriptures teach us that, that God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. That's not God's delight. That's not what, what God cherishes. He is a just God. He is a righteous God. The, the Scriptures teach us that He can by no means clear the guilty. He cannot leave them unpunished. But He does not relish or delight in their destruction, but rather grieves over it. Because His desire is for them to be saved. His desire is for them to be saved out of the misery of their sin and restored to a right relationship with Him where they can enjoy life in its full abundance. That is the heart of God. And that is why He is provoked by the idolatry of His people. He, he, he hates to see those whom He has created, those whom He loves, 
destroying themselves. We all know that. We, we have that same sense. When, when we see those we love engaged in self-destructive behavior, we know what it is to be provoked. That is what God feels. When he sees his creation running headlong into sin, when he sees them worshiping false gods, seeking life anywhere and everywhere but in him. And of course, this is the answer to our second question. God's anger is good. God's anger is, is righteous because it is that sort of expression of love. He is against that which undermines and harms the ultimate good of those whom he has made for himself. And of course, this is what we assume Paul's anger was as well. Paul's provocation is, is the same as God's provocation. Paul's anger is the same as, as God's anger. It's not absolutely pure, of course. Paul is a man like us. He is a, he is a sinner. But Paul was a man devoted to the Lord, a man devoted to the proclamation of the glory of God to all the ends of the earth. And he was provoked by the idolatry of the Athenians, not because he despised them, not because he hated them, but because he desired their good, because he longed to see them saved, because he longed to see them brought into a right relationship with the one true and living God. He knows the good news of Jesus, the good news of, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that he's proclaiming there in Athens. He knows it to be the good news of, of great joy for all people. And he desires all people to hear it and to, and to receive it and to rest upon it that they might be saved. And therefore, he is provoked when he sees people mired in idolatry, an idolatry that can only lead to their death and eternal separation from the God who made them for himself. That's Paul's heart. That's what Paul feels. And seeing it, I think, challenges us today, does it not? Are we similarly provoked? Are we similarly provoked by the secular idolatry of our age? As I said, we, we don't see the idols that Paul saw there in in Athens. We don't see the, the shrines. If we go looking, we can find places of, of false worship. But the idolatry of our day is a, is a decidedly secular idolatry. It is a seeking for, for protection and for, for provision and for life, not in false gods, but in ourselves. But it is just as destructive. It is just as deadly. We have to ask ourselves, are we provoked? by the idolatry that we see? Do we know the gospel of Jesus to be good news of great joy for all people? And do we long for all people to hear it and to believe it and to receive it and to find life in it? Or are we largely unmoved by the plight of those who remain separated from Christ and therefore separated from God? Always hesitant to, to play on emotions. Always hesitant to, to, to talk about what we feel. That's just the Presbyterian way. We, we like to focus more on what we think. But here, we see what Paul feels. He is provoked. I'm not telling you what your anger ought to look like. But are you provoked by the idolatry of our age? Are you provoked by the, the desperate plight of those who remain separated from Christ and therefore separated from God without hope in this 
world. You find yourself to be largely disinterested. But I would encourage you to make this a focus of your prayers. Begin to pray even as Paul prayed for the Philippians. Pray that God would cause your love, not only for him, but for your neighbors, to abound more and more. Pray that God would open your eyes to their plight, to their desperate situation, and that he would cause you to love them, that you might be moved to serve them. Because that's exactly what we see Paul do. When Paul is provoked, he gets to work. This is what Paul did. It's our, our third and final point this morning. Paul was provoked by the idolatry of the Athens because he loved them, because he, he desired them to, to be saved in Christ. And therefore, he went to work. Even before Silas and, and Timothy rejoined him, he, he returned to his ministry. First, we, we see Paul reasoning in the synagogues. I don't want to spend too much time here because this is a point we've, we've covered before. It's what we've seen Paul doing ever since he, he arrived in Macedonia. You remember when Paul first came to Macedonia, he went to, to Philippi. And he didn't go to the synagogue there because there wasn't one. And so what did he do? He went to the place of prayer. And you'll remember that that place of prayer is something like a synagogue plant. It's, it's like a church plant for the synagogue, right? This is, this is the beginning of a synagogue, waiting until they have enough people to establish an actual synagogue there in, in Philippi. But that's where Paul went. He went to the place of prayer that was down by the river. Then when he came into Thessalonica, and again when he came into Berea, he went to the synagogues. And there he reasoned with the people who were there, the Jews who had gathered and the God-fearers who, who had gathered. And of course, as he ministers week after week, others come as well to hear, and he, he ministers to them as well. But again, the point here is that Paul is going to the synagogue because he recognizes he recognizes that, that it is those who, who know Yahweh to be the one true God who are waiting for the Messiah. And he wants to go and proclaim to them the good news of that Messiah's arrival, that Messiah's advent. The Messiah has come. And he has given his life as the ransom for his people so that all who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what Paul is doing week after week after week at the, at, at the synagogue. See, he's proclaiming the fulfillment of all that was promised to Abraham. And he's proclaiming it to the Jews. What you've been waiting for has come. But we see now Paul do something new, something we haven't seen before. Because not only does, does Paul reason in the synagogues, but we're told that he also begins to reason in the marketplace to whoever happens to be there. To this point, we've only seen Paul in the synagogues. Now he's going beyond the synagogues. Why? Well, I think his provocation has something to do with it. Paul has come face to face with a crystal clear picture of the desperation, not only of the Jews in the synagogue who do not yet know Jesus, but of all the people in the city. And so Paul is compelled to expand his ministry. He begins to go not only to the synagogue, but to the marketplace and to speak with whoever will talk to him there. He will speak to whoever will engage with him. He's, he's proclaiming that same gospel, the gospel of Jesus and the resurrection, the gospel of, of life in the risen Savior, the, the gospel of, of the forgiveness of our sins and the restoration to life as it was meant to be in right relationship with the one true and living God. And what I want us to see is that this is something that the church is still called to today. Yes, we are called to go to the, to the synagogues. Yes, we are called to, to proclaim Christ in the churches to, to the people who, who know God but maybe yet don't know Him fully. 
But we are called to go beyond the churches to the marketplaces as well. We are called to go to those who won't come to us. Now, I want to be careful at this point. I, I don't want to suggest to you that every Christian has the same calling, that every Christian ought to be engaged in the, exactly the same type of work. We're not all gifted the same way. We're not all called the same way. It is the church as the church, the church universal that, that does this work. But the church is called not only to minister to those who come to us, but to minister to those who will not come. Again, let me, let me be honest. Let me put my cards on the table. My ministry has been much more about ministering to those who come than it is about going to those who won't. Throughout most of my career as a pastor, I have, I have spent far more time ministering to people in the church. I, I have spent far more time ministering to people who were already Christians, people who, who were seeking to be further discipled, further nurtured, to, to grow up in their faith. And I still believe today that that, that is my primary gifting. But I want us to recognize, I want us to recognize that the the calling of the church must go beyond this. We must minister not only to those who who are under-discipled, those who who are seeking to be uh, further taught and, and further nurtured and further encouraged towards growth in Christ. But again, as I said, we must go to those who won't come to us. Because the gospel is for all people. And we must desire the salvation of all people. We must learn to take the gospel beyond the walls of the church into our community. Now, we support people who do this already. We, we support church planters in, in Europe. We support church planters in, in uh, communities around the United States. We support campus ministers who, who go on, on, on university campuses to, to reach students. But it is something I want us to do as a congregation as well, more than we have in the past. And I want those of you who feel called to this type of ministry to to seek us out, that we could help you to engage as you seek to take the gospel beyond the walls of the church into our community. So there's a third thing here. We'll we'll talk more about this next week, but, but just notice it this morning. The third thing we see Paul do here is to engage with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. If Paul's ministry in the synagogues was something like our ministry to the church, but, but under-discipled, and if his ministry in the marketplace was, was something like the, uh, uh, a ministry to the unchurched, but, but seeking, at least interested, then we might say that, that Paul's ministry here to the philosophers is something like the, the unchurched and uninterested. These are people who are not looking. These are people who are not seeking. In fact, these are, are people who think they've got it figured out and are, and are attempting to teach others. The people who, who listened to Paul in the marketplace, they knew that their life wasn't working. That's why they would stop to listen. They didn't know the God of Abraham. They didn't know Jesus, but they knew they needed something. They knew their life was broken. The, the philosophers were different. They thought they had it figured out. They, they thought their system was, was working and they were actively seeking to teach others. I don't have time to go into all the details, but, but the Epicureans were something like agnostic deists. A deist is someone who believes, yeah, the gods are there, but they're not really engaged. Similarly, the, the Stoics were something like agnostic pan- pantheists. They, they believed God was there, but, but they thought he was sort of infused in everything. What's similar about both of them is they're both agnostic. Neither one thinks you can really know the gods or or serve the gods and certainly don't think the gods care whether you worship them or not. And so you have to figure out how to make life work on your own. And they both thought they had figured out. 
The Epicureans thought that, that people should pursue pleasure in all things. After all, tomorrow you die. So seek pleasure today, not in a foolish way, but in the best way that you can in this life. Seek, seek pleasure. The Stoics thought that was a fool's error, and they, they thought pleasure was unattainable. Life is just too hard. Life is just too nasty. It's too brutish. The best you can do is seek to fulfill your duty. And so that's what the Stoics thought. The, the Stoics said, don't worry about pleasure. Just do your duty. In that, you will find life. They said, you don't really need to understand all the details, but what you need to understand is that both of these groups thought they had a workable way of life. Both these groups thought they had figured it out and they were seeking to teach others how to live well in this world. And they engaged Paul to find out what he was saying because they realized that he was teaching something other than what he was seeing. They, they thought he was a, a babbler or a proclaimer of foreign deities. And yet despite their condescension, despite their derision, Paul engages with them and he seeks to show them that their systems really are not sufficient. We'll, we'll see that next Sunday as we look more fully at, at Paul's speech there at the Areopagus. But again, what I want us to see this morning is simply that this is part of the church's calling too. Not every minister of the gospel, not every member of the church is, is called to this sort of ministry. As I said, we, we, are, we are gifted in different ways. We are called to different ministries. But some in the church are called to this work, to, to taking the gospel to those who aren't even looking, who don't even know they need it. Because the gospel is for all people, and all people need it whether they recognize it or not. These alone are the words of life. Jesus Christ is the alone Savior of sinners. No other name is given under heaven by which men must be saved. No one else has, has risen victorious over death. No one else can reconcile us to God. And so the ministry of the church is to take this good news to the ends of the earth, to those who are looking and to those who aren't. This is what it means to be a minister of the gospel. It means to be an ambassador of the only good news that brings life to all people. This is what we see Paul doing in Athens. He's, he's taking the gospel to the synagogue. He's taking the gospel to the marketplace. He's even taking the gospel to the Areopagus where he engages with the philosophers and, the, and the, the thinkers of that age. But one way or another, he is proclaiming Jesus Christ and the resurrection because Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the only hope of mankind. All other hopes are false hopes. All other hopes are functionally idolatry. Seeking peace and protection and provision in lies. And because we have the privilege of, of taking the only true gospel to the ends of the earth, that is why we call it good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, what a glorious picture of ministry here in Athens, Father. Ministry to all people. Because Paul recognized that the gospel was needed by all and provided hope to all. Father God, may you stir up in us a love for our neighbors like that of Paul, that we might be provoked by their idolatry and that we might be moved to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and the resurrection to all, to those who want to hear it and to those who do not yet know they need to hear it. Father, may we be faithful ambassadors, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.